I don't know about you, but I suspect that you're like me, that there are times that you struggle with guilt. I think all of us have things that we remember in our lives that we just assumed we hadn't done what we did. I know that uh, I remember one time that I used to play a lot of tennis when I was in my 20s. I belonged to a racket club in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I was playing one night with this guy named Donnie, and we had fought it out for a couple of sets. I had won one set, and he'd had another. He won the other one, and so we needed to uh, play a third set to see who was the champion of the Ken and Donnie match. And I uh, told him I didn't have time to play. I was expecting an important business call that night, and so I needed to get home. And so we both walked off the court, and as we were walking back to the uh, parking lot, I bumped into the tennis pro uh, at that racket club, and he asked me to go out and hit some balls with him on the court. Well, of course, I was flattered. The tennis pro wanted to hit balls with me. Of course, I wanted to hit balls with a tennis pro, and so I went back out on the court, and for about 30 minutes, I hit balls. Well, my friend Donnie was sitting there on a picnic table watching us the whole time that we we're playing, and when we finished, we walked off, and he said, well, I hope you had a good time hitting with the pro for that 30 minutes that you didn't have time to hit with me. Really didn't treat Donnie very well. You know, I, I was so flattered that the tennis pro asked me to hit with him, I completely forgot that I told Donnie I didn't have time to hit with him. And so I felt, I felt so low, I kind of crawled off the court, got back in my car, felt so bad the next day that I called Donnie at work and apologize to him because I felt so guilty. Well, have you ever felt guilty like that? I realize that the kind of guilt that you may have experienced like me is a lot more important than whether you played a tennis match or not. It may be that you have done things for which you still feel guilty and you've been searching for a way to relieve that guilt. Well, I think that's true for all of us. Some of us have matured enough in the faith that guilt may not bother us all that much, but every now and then we feel that pinch of conscience on us. And then again, we may not have matured so much that we don't feel guilty about things that occur in the past. Well, Paul talks about relieving guilt in this passage that we're studying today, and he does so in a much more important context than a tennis match. He talks instead about how much greater the guilt of sin may be upon us because of the things that we have done against the Lord. And he does so by talking about the opposite of guilt, which is righteousness. If we have righteousness, then we don't have guilt, right? And so, you know, if he talks about righteousness, then that should relieve our guilt. And so let's consider what the Lord would have us learn from this passage about being righteous. And therefore, hopefully the practical benefit will come to us that it will relieve our guilt. In verse 2, Paul warned the Philippian church to watch out for the dogs, which was the False teachers who are called the Judaizers by most theologians today. The word Judaizers is not used in the Bible, but it is used of people that are in, in a concept behind that word. And they taught that a person to be saved must not only believe in Christ for salvation, but he must also be circumcised and keep the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament. 
uh, Paul sums up their beliefs in verse 3 by the phrase confidence in the flesh, which indicates that someone who trusts in anything other than Christ, any sort of merit that he manufactures, that he performs as somebody whose confidence in his flesh or in his natural ability. And this is exactly what the, what the Judaizers were doing. But Paul says instead that we Christians are the true circumcision because we have circumcision uh, or we have what circumcision symbolizes, which is cleansing from sin and right relationship to God. And then in verses 4 through 6, he gives evidence from his past life to show that he had more reason than the Judaizers did to hope in a righteousness which he had earned. He had a blue-blood Jewish uh, heritage and was by practice very committed to and zealous for Judaism. But when he met Christ on the road to Damascus, he realized that none of those things was going to do anything for him because God required a righteousness that Paul was not able to attain as good as his outward righteousness was in keeping the requirements of Judaism. Well, all of this up to this point is what we covered on the past two of occasions. And so now continuing in the same section from verses 4 through 11 that we began last time, Paul shows from his present life why he thinks that the Judaizers are wrong and what he now values as true righteousness, which may be summed up by the phrase confidence in Christ. The Judaizers were confident in the flesh. Paul is confident in Christ. And so I want to examine our passage today by dividing it into two sections. The first would entitle our loss or our own righteousness in verses 7 and 8. And then the second division is our gain or another's righteousness in 9 through 11. So Paul begins in verses 7 and 8 by using the business terms of profit and loss, and what he means by profit is all of the meritorious things that he did before he came to faith in Christ. He formerly considered his Jewish ancestry and his upbringing and his outward obedience to the Old Testament law something of which he could be proud of, and it was something to be proud of. He regarded this as gain or profit or meritorious of his good works. And this, he hoped, would give him acceptance with the Lord. But when he met the risen Christ, as I said before, he realized that what he considered uh, his former prophet was worth no more than garbage or rubbish in God's sight, as he says in verse 8. It's not as if all of these things that Paul lists in verses 5 through 6 were bad in and of themselves, such as observing religious ritual, one's status due to birth, one's outstanding accomplishments due to intelligence or effort, etc. But there are two problems that result from looking at these merits as Paul did before his conversion. The first of which is it makes a person self-reliant and proud, uh, unaware of his need of God and of the righteousness that only Christ can provide. The second is that it's impossible to have a righteousness uh, that you earn for yourself that's good enough for God. In verse 9, Paul says that he does not want to have his own righteousness which come from the law, which is exactly the sort of thing that I was just talking about. 
He does not say the reason for this here, but he does say this in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. It says there, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so Paul says no one will be justified or counted righteous. That's what it means to be justified. No one will be counted righteous in God's sight by keeping the law or by his own merit. And the reason that no one can be declared righteous in God's sight is that no one can obey God's law perfectly. And God requires it to be obeyed perfectly. We know this from Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. It says there, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And so Paul realized that no one can stand before God and hope to be accepted as righteous on the basis of his own merit because his boastful self-reliance is repugnant to God. And then secondly, because the person's own righteousness is insufficient to satisfy God's perfect requirements. God is a perfect God. He requires us to be perfect before him. And if we can't keep his law perfectly, we can't be saved that way. And so Paul began to see these former assets as loss or liabilities because they were keeping him from knowing God truly according to his perfect requirements. Instead, in verse 8, Paul says that he found the surpassing greatness or the ultimate value of knowing Christ Jesus of Nazareth. And when he says knowing here, he doesn't simply mean knowing some facts about Jesus. It does include knowing some facts about Jesus, but that's not all that it means. It means having an intimate knowledge, a relational knowledge of the Lord, as seen by the way that that word is used in Scripture. It's used in Matthew chapter 1, verse 24, when it says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And so Joseph did not have any intimate relations with his wife. That's what it meant, knowing his wife. And so when Paul says he wanted to know Christ Jesus, he wanted to have an intimate relationship, a communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how then may a person have this personal relationship of which Paul speaks? And he answers that question, verses 9 through 11. A person has that relationship through the righteousness of Christ. And there's five things I'd like for you to know about this. First of all, the necessity of that righteousness. Paul does not use the term eternal life here or in many other places in his writings. Life is more the terminology that the Apostle John uses in his writings, and Paul prefers to use the term righteousness or to be righteous before God. And the reason for that was because Paul knew that the indispensable quality that a person had to have to have eternal life was to be counted righteous in God's sight. And so Paul backs up a little bit from having eternal life and says, this is the way into having eternal life is to be counted righteous by God. And so righteousness is most necessary. Secondly, well, how can a person be perfectly righteous in God's sight? 
Well, the answer to that question is, it is through union with Christ, which we see in verse 9. It says there that Paul hopes to be found in him, meaning in Christ, and he will receive Christ's righteousness through being united to Christ. To help understand this concept of union with Christ, we need to look at First uh, Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 22. It says there, for as, in all Ad, uh, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so what this verse teaches is that God deals with people based on their relationship with one of two people in redemptive history, either Adam on the one hand or Christ on the other hand. Everyone is counted as having acted with Adam when he sinned in the Garden of Edom. They are therefore said to be in Adam or in union with Adam in his act of disobedience, whether they physically participated in his act of disobedience or not. Adam was the representative or the covenant head of his people when he ate the forbidden fruit. His actions brought guilt, brought the guilt of sin and death on all mankind, which God counted to them. In a similar way, Christ is the representative or covenant head of his people in his work of redemption. He perfectly obeyed the law of God in his earthly life, and he gives his earned righteousness to all who are united to him. It does not matter whether, in fact, the people who are united to Christ are actually righteous in character at the point of coming to justification uh, so far as their legal standing before God is concerned. What counts with God is their relationship to Christ. And I know this is a difficult concept, so let let me illustrate it by the analogy of your telephone landline. Yeah, yeah, I know this is a little bit dated illustration. A lot of people don't have that. How many people have landlines in here for the telephone? Okay, so some people know what a landline is. Okay, so when you want to talk on your landline to someone else, you go to the phone, you pick it up, your voice goes through the, the lines, the electrical lines that connect you to other lines, which goes to the person's house that you want to talk to, and you have a conversation over the telephone. Well, union with Christ is like those telephone lines. You need to picture in your minds that there are all these electrical lines descending from heaven into various households around the world, and those power lines connect or unite Christ to his people and communicate his righteousness to them, and God counts that union as satisfying his requirements for righteousness. I used this illustration once before, and I asked Linda how she liked it. She said, it sounds like one that an engineer would give. That's a joke. Y'all should have all laughed at that. Thirdly, how then is this union with Christ established from man's point of view? Well, Paul says in verse 9 that the way of righteousness that God approves is one where righteousness is appropriated or received through a person's faith. Since righteousness is received by faith, it becomes important to define faith. What is faith in God's sight? Biblical faith consists in understanding the facts about Christ as he is offered in the Bible, 
believing that these facts are true and receiving these facts for oneself as if they apply to you and then resting on or trusting in the, in the facts that you know about Christ. And so the righteousness that counts with God is obtained by believing in Christ's perfect life, death on the cross, and resurrection. And from this, when you consider the nature of faith, one can see why the way of righteousness by faith is opposed to keeping the law. Law-keeping looks to oneself and depends on one's resources for a righteousness that you earn. But faith is looking away from oneself and from one's own resources to save you based on the resources of righteousness of somebody else. In other words, from Christ. And Gerald Hawthorne in his commentary says about this, Faith is not an alternative way of earning God's favor. Faith is the opposite of merit, an admission that I cannot earn God's approval, but can only accept his free offer of forgiveness, grace, and love. Unquote. And so by its nature, faith is the opposite of law-keeping or trying to earn God's favor by keeping a set of rules. Fourthly, Paul says in verse 9 that the provision of righteousness is from God. And to understand this concept, Romans chapter 4 verse 3 says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now Paul is here trying to prove his statements in the prior chapter in Romans that a person is justified by faith alone and he is doing so by showing the example of Abraham from the Old Testament. And what I want you to see is that when Abraham believed God, what God, what God had told him, God counts or imputes or reckons righteousness to Abraham. And the word count or reckon or imputes, whichever translation you have in your Bible, is used where God credits to a person's count the righteousness of Christ when he puts his trust in Christ. God reckons it to be so. It's not that the person is actually righteous, but he's crediting that person with Christ's righteousness. He transfers the righteousness from Christ to that person, and he transfers the sins of that person to Christ. So there's accounting in God's sight. This is the way God reckons things to be, even though in actual practice, Jesus is not a sinner. In actual practice, the sinner is not righteous in God's sight. But this is the way that God does things. Fifthly and last in verse 10, Paul says that the purpose of being found in Christ and having his righteousness is so that we may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This does not mean that Paul wishes to be a martyr. He does say in Romans chapter 8 that we're going to suffer with Christ. So his people are a suffering people. But I don't think that that's what Paul is driving here uh, in this passage. I think rather Paul is trying to use the same imagery that he used in Romans chapter 6, where he says that we're united with Christ in his death in verse 4 meaning that when Christ died on the cross, God counted us as dying with him. And when it says in the same chapter that Christ was raised and we were raised with him, it means that his resurrection life is the basis on which his people can live a new life. That is because he communicates to them the benefits of his new life through the Holy Spirit. 
And so going back to the telephone illustration with all those lines hanging down from heaven to the people on earth, imagine that the Holy Spirit are those power lines that are hanging down. He is the one energizing people with the resurrection life of Christ. So when Paul says that he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, Becoming like Christ in his death, he means he wants to experience the death and resurrection life of Christ by living his life to the glory of God, doing what God has said in his word, and by putting to death his sinful tendencies. And so the result of receiving Christ's righteousness is not only that one can be counted righteous by God and be justified, but also that one can become like Christ in actual practice. And therefore, righteousness from God is counted to us, results in our striving after spiritual perfection. And then in verse 11, the outcome of this righteousness is that Paul will somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead or have eternal life. It may appear that Paul leaves us in doubt whether he will finally have salvation or not, but I don't think that's really what he means. It just is sort of his humble way of saying that he does hope that he will persevere in the faith and finally have the resurrection that God promises his people. And so we started off talking about relieving guilt. In my case, it was illustrated by a tennis match. But more seriously, do you realize that there are things that God holds us all guilty in his presence Some of the things we may not be aware of, some of the things we may be acutely aware of. But God allows us to deal with our our guilt by receiving the righteousness of Christ today. And so if you've never done so, you need to repent of your sins. To repent means to cease your rebellion against God, to turn away from those sins and turn to trusting in Christ for your salvation to see that you were born into this world hostile to God. You were counted by God as an enemy. Everyone in this room was counted as God's enemy when we came into this world. Nobody was born a Christian in this room. We all had at some point in our lives had to come to faith in Christ to be right with God. And so that's what God requires of us today if we've never done so to repent to trust in Christ completely for our salvation, not trust in anything that we do to earn salvation. And God graciously grants us that salvation freely. Just imagine God could have required us to crawl across America on glass on our hands and knees to earn salvation, but he didn't. He requires us simply to believe in Christ. And so God generously offers salvation to us, the righteousness that we cannot earn for ourselves. He promises us a clean slate and the ability to obey him in the future. Let's give thanks to him as we close. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you have provided for all of your people a right standing before you, all of the necessary abilities that we have to carry out the work that you've told us to do, to love you, to serve you, to be devoted to you. And so we pray, Father, that you would grant it to us that we may do those things more in this coming week. Help us that we might grow in our righteousness in practice 
We ask it all, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.